Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast. Here's your host, Charles Sizemore. Welcome. I'm Charles Sizemore, host of the Banyan Edge Podcast. We are going to be talking about the banking system today, and we're going a bit more big picture. Seems every other weekend now we have a bank failing, usually these, these smaller regional banks. Thankfully, none of the big, too big to fail banks have, have gone down yet. But it does raise this question. Do we still need regional banks? Do they still serve a purpose? Or is this just part of the evolutionary cycle here, um, working its way through? To help me answer those questions is the always insightful Mr. Ian King. I'm flattered. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> you're, you're the guy everybody wants to have at the cocktail party because you always have just something kind of off the wall and, and, and interesting to say. <laughs> I'll, I'll try boring. to be as far off the wall as you want me to be today. <laughs> Excellent. So let's let's talk banks. So I think you were probably a little surprised as I was that you know we we get to the office Monday morning and there there was no bank failure. It's like, well, come on, like there's supposed to be a bank failure over the weekend. That's just what happens now. Um, you know, you 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 close the work week on Friday, just assuming that when you get back to the office on Monday, there will be a bunch of new banks that failed, but. Uh, it turns out that did not happen. The two banks that were the most at risk right now are, I believe, PacWest and Western Alliance. They're, they've actually been rallying the last two days. So it seems that perhaps this, this fear of, um, kind of small banking contagion might have run its course, at least at least for now. That could, that, that could change while we're speaking, of course. But uh, it looks like we may be at least on a lull right now. But going big picture, last week, you and I were chatting offline. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned... You just kind of thrown out a question, and I kind of thought it was a rhetorical question, but I don't think it was. I think you were completely serious, and that is, do we really need the regional banks anymore? It has has this concept, has this, you know, that they serve their purpose, of course, but has has this run its course? You know, if we did have widespread failures, does it even matter anymore? And yeah. so uh, let, let, let's talk about that. So... You know, what it boils down to me is 15 years ago, we had the financial crisis, right? Which literally every weekend you could expect another bank to go under when you came in on Monday morning. And, you know, that was based on the fact that a lot of these uh, larger banks, especially the too big to fail ones, had invested in riskier subprime assets and mortgages and all kinds of credit derivatives that they didn't quite understand what happened when housing prices went down. Um and because housing result, prices never went down. That's right. I mean, that's was, <laughs> that was the mantra for most of the 2000s. Um, but, you know, as a result, Congress stepped in and passed Dodd-Frank. And along with that was something called the Volcker Rule, which said, basically, you know, you can't operate your bank like a hedge fund. And if you're going to use depositors' assets to invest, it has to be in something that is relatively risk-free, like U.S. Treasuries, Okay. And so, you know, a, a lot of these banks uh, started playing by the new rules. Of course, they were required to. Uh, but in 2022, we had basically a perfect storm where the price of treasuries dropped because interest rates went up so quickly. Okay, so it started this kind of um, domino effect in the sense that one bank went down, Silicon Valley Bank. You know, they didn't really lose that much money compared to their deposit assets, but they, they lost confidence in depositors. And in a fractional reserve banking system, if you believe that one bank is in trouble, it is rational for you to move your money from that bank to another bank where you think it's safer. 
And we saw a wave of this movement from banks like Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic and Pacific uh, PacWest into JP Morgan and Bank of America, right? And now, you know, a hundred years ago, you would have to line up at the bank and like try to get your money from the teller. He, now it's like you just open up your mobile phone and press a couple of buttons, open up a new account somewhere else, and just well, transfer also, it over. also the, the the fear spreads faster now. Before you had your money at the bank down the street, you may not even know there was a crisis until you happened to talk to a neighbor later, or maybe happened to pick up a newspaper. Now it's it could hit your phone instantly and i mean rumors spread faster and and rumors become self-fulfilling prophecies when it comes to banking exactly and with social media especially because what happened with silicon valley bank is you had some prominent vcs that were saying basically to all their portfolio companies get your money out of uh silicon valley bank and they were doing that they said this on slack to like an internal chat and that sparked rumors flying and the last thing you need is you know, as a banker is for people to lose confidence in the, their deposits there. Particularly um, considering this wasn't some, you know, fringe of the internet saying this, these were the VC guys that are supposed to know, like that's a credible, like when you hear someone like that telling you to get your money out, you get your money out. <laughs> right. It's like yelling fire in a crowded theater, essentially. Sure. And so what we've seen, and this no, but is not just that, it's like a guy wearing a fireman suit yelling fire in a crowded yeah. theater. Yeah. And and the irony, though, is that uh, the idea after the Dodd-Frank reform was to make sure that we don't have banks that are too big to fail. But what we've just created in the last six months is like J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, you know, Citigroup now have uh, something like 65 percent of all depositors assets in the country. So you have these banks that have just gotten bigger. You know, J.P. Morgan went from something like 13 percent of depositors assets to 20 percent because of the movement of people out of these smaller regional banks where they fear they might go under. And, you know, I said at the time after Silicon Valley Bank, I said, this is, this is not going to be the end of the regional bank run. The reason for that is because, you know, if you're in First Republic, uh, why would you stay there when you can move somewhere else? So it's completely rational for people to move their money into a bank you know, like JP Morgan or Bank of America that has a more diversified revenue stream, you know, and maybe wasn't caught in this treasury trade that seems a lot of banks were. I just want to leave it with this, is that I don't think that the the issues with the uh, the treasury market is over in the sense that there are a lot of losses that we really have not realized or haven't really recovered the bodies. And the reason for that is if you go back four years ago, um, you had $15 trillion of debt of sovereign debt that was trading at a negative interest rate. Okay. And any pension fund or, or any investor that bought, you know, a German bond when it was 25 base negative 25 basis points is now sitting on a pretty big unrealized loss. And especially if you invested in the long end of the curve, like the longer duration type stuff, you're in a, a lot bigger uh, loss than you could have imagined in something that was supposed to be a quote unquote risk-free asset. And so, you know, we just have to be very careful um, uh, going forward because, you know, th there could be some sovereign wealth funds that potentially, you know, have some big losses in U.S. treasuries or any type of uh, European debt as well. So, you know, I don't think this crisis is over. And I do think what it's going to cause is the Fed is really going to need to pivot sooner than later. They're going to have to start repairing the damage to the credit markets that was done because we're losing a lot of these regional banks right now. Um, and so, you know, we're already seeing in the market, we, especially when you see like the, the, the NASDAQ is, is leading the way with, with growth stocks, especially.
Let, let's pivot, go a little bit bigger picture now. Mm-hmm. So we talked about, okay, th- this crisis is centered on the smaller banks. Uh, you do have to ask yourself, well, what happens if they just flat out fail? Uh, a lot of times, in, particularly in smaller towns, whenever I go skiing in Colorado, I always drive through the Texas Panhandle. And you go through all these little towns, and there might be one bank in the entire town. And then you ask yourself that question, well, I mean, if that bank were to disappear, it's kind of hard to imagine J.P. Morgan or City going to Pampa, Texas or somewhere. I mean, like, they're just, it's not worth their resource. It's not worth the investment for them to go there. Like, that, it's, it, they're just not going to touch it. it. It's not worth their time. It's not worth their capital. So that, that raises the question, well, should, okay, we have bank failures, um, you know, like in, in the savings and loan crisis, late 80s, early 90s, one out of every three banks in Texas just disappeared. Mm-hmm. If you were to have something like that, what, what does the new world look like? And, and let's, let's kind of break this down. What does a bank do? <laughs> if they have various functions. Let's, let's break it down by function. You know, the first thing they do is, you know, they, they hold depositors' assets. That is a liability to the bank, but of course, it's your asset. You know, they, they provide security to your savings. You don't mm-hmm. want to leave cash sitting in your house where your house can burn down, somebody can steal it, et cetera. Keeping it in the bank is, it's there for safekeeping, it's there for convenience. But do we really, is that as important as it used to be today with modern tech? Your cash really isn't in the bank, though. I mean, the banks only have to keep a fraction of those reserves on hand. And we saw that with Silicon Valley Bank, where, you know, the FDIC was only covering depositors up to $250,000. And then they had to extend that even further. Um, I think that we're probably at a point where the Treasury and the Fed need to sit down and create a larger amount for the FDIC to stem well, the but, 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 but hold on, but, yeah, yeah, I, I don't disagree, but like, let's, let's, let's kind of cover this other point first. When was the last, do you have any, like, if you were to, do you have your wallet on you? Do you have any cash in it? Like, I'd no. actually be curious <laughs> because no, I don't have a single no. dollar in my wallet. I have some Peruvian soles yeah. because I so, still kind of need cash in Peru from time to time, but I don't remember the last time I had cash in the U.S., right. And with these and, small yeah. banks, like there's only so many lollipops and dog biscuits they can give out to like retain customers, right? Well, but think about the stuff that you <laughs> like even 10 years ago, I barely had cash. And then it was inconvenient when I needed to pay a tip, you know, for a valet or something like that. You can pay the valet with Venmo now. They have like the little code, you scan your phone, you can give the guy a tip on Venmo and and it's fine. Like you yeah. don't you don't even have to have cash for that. Um and even in the developing world for crying out loud. The guy's washing cars. I, uh, oh, man, I don't have any cash. He's like, yeah, 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 man, you can. They have a thing called Yape in Peru. Right. It's basically yeah. like Venmo. You just, hey, just I have my code. Just I, that, that's, that's how it is now. So in a world where you don't really need cash, do you really even need checking accounts in their current form? Yeah, you can direct deposit your paycheck into a bank anywhere. It doesn't have to be your local bank. Does it does that function even matter anymore? Right. And I I don't think so. But also the bigger picture is like the most frustrating thing is waiting online at the bank. <laughs> I would rather do all my banking on my phone. And I'll give you an example of what happened. So we moved to Florida five years ago and I decided, you know, I come down here. I'm going to open up a new bank account in Florida with one of these smaller regional banks who will go unnamed. And um, within a couple of months, the uh the the their software their website was actually down 
it was down for two weeks where I could not do any transactions online. Two I weeks. Send a wire. Two full I thought, weeks. I thought you were going to say like two hours. <laughs> no, two weeks. <laughs> like you had to go to the bank to do anything. So I opened up a, another account at Bank of America and moved my all assets over. And I think what the problem is going to be with these regional banks is they're not going to have the budgets to compete on the tech side versus the larger banks. And not only that, you have tech companies that are now entering the fold. So Apple right now gives you a savings account that yields over 4%. You know, you get more in Apple than you do at JP Morgan. And I'm sure JP Morgan is not happy about this, but like, why wouldn't everyone, especially millennials who are very tech savvy, just open up an Apple account, put their savings in there well, yeah, instead of- It's not just, I mean, remember, we're, we're not that young anymore. I mean, we're, uh, I, I know for because yourself. my shoulder Speak hurt for this yourself, morning when I woke up. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're in middle age now. And I know because I made the mistake of playing basketball with people 15 years younger than me on Friday. And three <laughs> days later, I still couldn't get out of bed because it hurts. But anyway, I digress. Um, you know, even people 10, 20 years older than us mm -hmm. use their iPhones for everything. I mean, my parents are glued to their phones. I mean, it's not like you have to be young to move your cash to an internet savings account. That's something that any like, almost anybody under the age of about 70 can handle now without help. Yep. So it, it's not that this is not just for, you know, whippersnappers here. This is, wow, I actually use the word whippersnapper. Like we should probably... Like just forget I ever said that. But anyway, um, this is something that that really applies to the vast majority of Americans at this point. Yeah, but so you know the the end result is going to be with capital moving from small and regional banks. You know the trade. What I saw in early March was that a lot of the farm related stocks, which get a lot of their financing from these midwestern banks, uh, started falling. So if you look at like the chart of Deer that came down because people were worried that the farmers would not be able to get as much credit as they were because there wouldn't be as much competition for it. The other thing banks do, which I think we need to touch upon, is they underwrite mortgages. And right. you know, you and I discussed this. You don't necessarily have to go to your local savings loan anymore to get a mortgage. In fact, you know, you can go to Bankrate or LoanDepot.com and see where the competitive rates are. And there are companies like Better.com, which can underwrite it cheaper, more efficiently, faster. You know, they have a very tech-focused platform on collecting. I don't know if you well, and also even ever... along, but it's more even more fundamental than that. The, the thing to remember is the bank down the street never holds your loan. They're essentially exactly. just a a stepping stone for Fannie Mae. Yep. <laughs> the end of the day, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac buy the vast majority of of, of all mortgages, and then it, in, it ends up becoming a, a bond down the road. But that's, you know, it's not like the banks even use their own capital for that. They do for a very short period of time, just long enough to package it up and sell it to Fannie Mae. So um, yeah, that, that's, that's another thing. It's like, like the banking system has, or not the bank, the, the mortgage system specifically has effectively been nationalized for decades. And, and now we're just doing it more efficiently with these, these, these apps that you mentioned. Right. And and don't forget also one of the main costs is operating all these brick and mortar centers, right? And we've seen it in other businesses as well. I mean, you look at like how Amazon put a, and e-commerce put a lot of brick and mortar stores out of business. We're just starting to get around to, you know, the the brick and mortar banks, the, the ones that basically uh, win business because of their specialized location. And that might be, you know, in a town in West Texas that only has one option. 
But now you just go online, you have many more options. So to me, this feels like the swan song of the small and regional banks, because I don't see how they're going to maintain their competitiveness against the larger banks that number one, can ensure safety among their depositors without the need for a government intervention. And number two, you know, their competitiveness against the, the very businesses they do, that could be underwriting a loan for a small or medium-sized business, which is a huge part of the smaller banks, and also underwriting mortgages, which, you know, they can't be competitive right now against some of the rates that you can see um, online at, at, at different websites. So it, it, it's going to be a really interesting uh, way for, or the way this shakes out is like, how is the Fed and the Treasury going to stop the decline of assets from these small banks into the larger multinational ones, which is recreating this too big to fail problem that we tried to address in 2008. Well, the other issue too is how do the how, how do banks how have banks historically made sure that their deposits stayed in place? Well, they offered higher rates on savings products like CDs and savings accounts. Well, the more you know, the higher those rates go, the lower those banks' profits get, and mm -hmm the less incentive they even have to remain in business. So none of that's good for their uh, their long-term prospects. Now, um, you, you mentioned loans. And let, let's, let's talk about that because I know you're, our, you're, you're a crypto guy. You're our decentralized finance guy. Yeah, this is an area of expertise for you. I've thought for a while that you know, the traditional bank underwriting... So, so you know, let's talk about loans. If a big company wants a loan, they don't really go to the bank. You know, they issue bonds, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, loans are more for those kind of smaller and medium-sized companies. And with tech moving the way it is already, if I wanted to start some new project, some new business, I can go to whatever GoFundMe or somewhere, and I can raise capital directly without using a financial intermediary like a bank. Now, right now, it's still in its infancy. But you know, you, you're more involved in this space than I am. I mean, how do you how do you see this developing? So, you know, first of all, let's talk about Bitcoin, right? The origins of Bitcoin in 2010, the first block that Satoshi Nakamoto mined, he put a message in there uh, that alluded to the UK bailing out banks for the second time in 2010. It was Chancellor on the brink of a second bailout. It was the message that he encoded in the first blockchain block. And so the idea of this decentralized alternative currency is, as people think of it as a hedge like gold, as an alternative to when uh, the government spends more money and the value of your fiat currency goes down, you lose purchasing power. So then you would want some type of alternative to shelter some of your value in. Uh, the second part, though, is Ethereum, which came around in 2015. And basically, it's just a programmable form of money. And so you can build all types of new digital infrastructures on top of Ethereum, which you couldn't do on Bitcoin. And the, the idea, first and foremost, of Bitcoin and why you know, it's not subject to, to government is that, number one, it has a limited amount of supply. 21 million Bitcoins can only be printed and that will finish in about the year 2150. And uh, number two, it's peer-to-peer. -peer. So that if I want to send you Bitcoin, which has digital value, I don't need a bank, an intermediary. I don't need, you know, a wire system. Like we you don't need a middleman taking a cut. No, I just basically need access to the internet. 
Um, and it's as simple as sending an email. You know, it can be costly right now and it can take 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So it's not the best, Bitcoin is not the best form of payment. But then along came Ethereum in 2015 and it created a peer-to-peer -peer digital currency where you could build new structures on top of. And so what people and engineers have been working on for the last eight years is recreating the financial markets in a way that can be run as peer-to-peer. -peer. And that can be everything from a decentralized exchange, right? So instead of having the New York Stock Exchange, you can trade on a smart contract, two assets, and uh, you find liquidity there without having to route them to a centralized exchange. You can create futures markets in a decentralized manner using Ethereum. Um, another thing that they're uh, working on are ways to create new pools of capital. Okay, So there's something called a decentralized autonomous organization or a DAO. And what it allows is people who have no economic history with one another can join together in the pursuit of some type of financial objective. And the best use case of this was there was a DAO that raised $42 million in two weeks to try to buy a copy of the US Constitution. They lost to uh, Ken Griffin, who is the founder of Citadel, mostly because he knew how much they raised <laughs> and outbid them by a million dollars. But it just goes to show you the power of this, where those people in the Constitution DAO had no, no economic history with one another, but they were able to trust one another because of the rules that were baked into the code. Whereas if you contributed, let's say, $1,000 with Ethereum to the Constitution DAO, you got tokens that were represented in that in the Constitution DAO. So it's a new way of capital formation in ways we haven't seen before. And I think what is going to be most interesting about this is that when you start a new company, right, let's say you're starting a new social media and you get a bunch of VC backing, right? Um, the people who join your social media, your new social media, let's say, let's say you're, you are going to start a new version of uh, Twitter. Okay, Charles, and you're going to call it something. I'm not like that crazy. <laughs> but let's say you're going to call it something like chirp, right? And you went out and you got a bunch of money from the VCs and, you know, you raised a hundred million dollars. And then you're like, okay, how am I going to incentivize users to start using my new social media? Well, you can like buy ads and suggest people go there, or maybe you can pay some famous people to chirp on your new social media site. But when you create something that is blockchain based, that has a currency underneath it, that has value that can be tracked and traded, you can incentivize users to join your protocol. And so like, if you think about if early, imagine if early Facebook users, you know, had equity in Facebook, right? They would immediately be, be incentivized to say to their friends, hey, you know, join uh, this this new social hey, I'm media. I'm on this outlet. thing. We share photos and stuff. It's cool. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. And and so that's basically what crypto is. Is you know, people think of it as like a a pyramid scheme and and whatnot. But it's a new way to incentivize yeah. the creation of digital value because if you are an early user, an early adopter, the rewards to you necessary are necessarily larger than the people who come late. And um. And, and so you can create all these new digital structures in a way that actually incentivizes users to join in a way that you couldn't before. And so that's like beyond Bitcoin and Ethereum, but that's how I see a lot of the adoption happening. It's that people uh, are creating some type it. of digital value. What? Yeah, they're yeah. incentivized. Exactly. And, and we've never had this type of mechanism before where you didn't need some type of middleman to decide basically who owns what. It's all baked into the code. And it's basically, you know, all baked into whatever protocol you is you are choosing to use. And so 
the next wave of crypto adoption, this is even outside the financial system, is the provision of different types of digital resources. So, you know, it's like cloud storage you get basically from Amazon or Google, where there are going to be cloud companies that allow you to have a device in your house that sells basically cloud storage to the internet. You know, th there will be blockchain based. So, so it's kind of like people that have solar panels on their house and they actually contribute energy to the grid. Exactly. Something kind of like, yeah. Ways to optimize the resources that we have in a way that there's no centralized control of them, but people who are in the system can be rewarded for the value that they produce. And I mean, think about every time a company goes to raise capital in the traditional financial markets, they're paying type of some type of spread. I was at Citigroup. We underwrote the syndicate deals for you know massive companies like Ford and GM and WorldCom at the time. You know, WorldCom did ten billion dollars debt issuance with us, and you know we scooped like a hundred million dollars from them on that trade. Right? It's like, but imagine a future where there's not some type of bank that's shaving off a little bit on everything. The people who get to shave it off are the participants in the financial system, not some banker. And so that that's the promise of decentralized finance. Uh, we started to see that in the, the the first you know DeFi wave that came in the summer of 2020. We're starting to see new types of protocols launch, and I think just because the way this is is more efficient, it's a more efficient way to run the capital markets. Eventually, everyone will migrate to some form of decentralized finance. And look, I mean. It's like JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon, he was always negative on Bitcoin and he's called it a fraud, whatever. I mean, they launched their own JPM coin yeah. in, in 2020. You can't make this up, right? No. They were the first bank to do an Ethereum transaction, you know? So it's like they see the writing on the wall, even though they don't want you to get in before them because they want to carve out their little piece. So, you know, if, if you want to <laughs> learn more about it, Please join Next Wave Crypto Fortunes. We discuss it every week. Um, and it, it's something that gets me really excited because this is not like a short-term gain. You're going to see lots of ups and downs in the crypto markets, but you have to think over the long term. This is a technology that's in its infancy. Ethereum is only eight years old. You know, it's like in second grade. Where is this technology going to be 10, 20, 30, 40 years is going to be, you know, much more part of society just because it does something that allows you to do it adds value. It adds value and it creates an incentive structure where one did not exist before. And I, I will add, guys, you know, to, to anybody watching this, this is an exciting space, but it also moves very quickly. And I myself, my, my knowledge on this is, is quite limited. This is why I, this is why I have Ian on. <laughs> you actually do need an expert in this field to walk you through it. So we will put a link below. I, I do highly recommend you, you check out uh, Ian's writing on this. Uh, you need somebody that actually knows what they're doing. So um, you mentioned you know, the origins of Bitcoin. It, the, Bitcoin's origins were the 2008 meltdown, which put huge stress on the banking system and on the treasuries and central banks of you know, virtually every country in the world. So that kind of raises the question, okay, if, if the current situation we're in today, um, this snowballs, you know, we end up having to have a big government bailout of the banks. Again, seems like every... We're due for one, right? Every decade, you got to have some sort of banking blow up that gets bailed out. This kind of raises the question. And I, I, I hear this brought up every couple of years. Somebody mentions, oh, the dollar is going to use its status as a global reserve currency. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's time, you know, whatever. It's, it's the dollar's day in the sun is, is coming to a close. We're going to have a new reserve currency, yada, 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 yada. 
I've always been skeptical of that because my view has been that the dollar is the cleanest dirty shirt. There's, <laughs> you know, yeah, the dollar is a mess, but find me a currency that's actually run better and we'll talk. Mm -hmm. This raises the question, what if the next reserve currency isn't a currency at all? Like, what if it's crypto? What, what, I mean, is that possible? Is that feasible? This is, thank you. I'm glad you brought that up because I've been saying this for over a year now that I believe by the end of this decade, Ethereum will be the global reserve. I mean, look, right now, I mean, I hate to say this, but this is the reality. U.S. is basically an empire in decline. We have uh, poor rates of education, whether that mean, you know, basic education or civil education, civic education in the United States. We have lower participation in, in the civic process. We have more internal fighting than we've had, you know, since I've been alive. And then you have all these external factors where it's like other countries are also trying to destabilize us. Uh, the key is when you have an empire in decline, and we saw this in the British Empire, for example, and also the, the Dutch Empire in the 15th century, your reserve currency can still maintain its dominance, even though your empire is in decline. I mean, for example, the British Empire... Uh, the U.S. surpassed England as the largest economy in the world in the 1870s. However, the pound did not lose its reserve status until the Great Depression. So, you know, we could still have the dollar reserve currency, even though there are there's obviously evidence that the U.S. is in decline. The decline happens for a lot of reasons. Number one, uh, we ran up very high debt to GDP levels, given uh, primarily because of what happened with the tax cuts and the Afghan war during the Bush presidency. We're now operating 125% debt to GDP. We bailed out basically the banking system, the automotive system, a lot of the money we did get back. We've had another round of basically this huge fiscal stimulus to fight basically a war against coronavirus. So that's led to debt levels really high. And now we have these like banking issues, which is going to require you, you more. You remember when stimulus. a trillion dollars was a lot of money? The idea of a trillion dollar budget deficit would have just been like absurd. And now that's just every year. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, I mean, it shows you also the decline in the purchasing power of the dollar just over the last 20 years. You know, so a trillion dollars 20 years ago was probably you know, what half that. Um, and then I, I would say that there is no rival to the dollar right now in terms of, you know, foreign investors are not going to start putting their money into Chinese yuan. And, and, and that's been my argument. The dollar would re, re, re retain its reserve status because there was no other currency that was viable. But we're not really talking about currencies at this point. Right. But here you have Ethereum, right? Even yeah. more so than Bitcoin. Okay. So Ethereum is a currency that also has a utility. So it has a use case because you need it to run this global decentralized computer. Okay. So think about if you had, let's say, something that represented oil, but you could freely and fungibly trade it and deliver it like physical oil, like imagine if you like had oil in like a sack or something like that, you know, and you like went to 7-Eleven, you bought a Slurpee and you like put some drops of oil on there. That's basically- I mean, I am from Texas. That's not that <laughs> far-fetched. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's like a, it, it's a commodity that also has the fungibility of a currency. And the the faster and the more this ecosystem grows, um, you know, you're going to start to see uh, uh, Ethereum become a rival reserve currency to the dollar. So basically, Charles, to wrap it up, you know, we are in the digital age. We have a digital currency that's not controlled by a government or a corporation, and it allows for 
uh, the creation of new types of digital infrastructure that can be powered by the users and not some type of middleman and the the benefits accrue to those users. And so that's why I think Ethereum, you know, necessarily will be a rival to the US dollar probably, you know, sooner than we even expect. Um, and if you want to learn more about it, you know, please check out Next Wave Crypto Fortunes. Uh, I, I write about it and we speak about it just about every week. And we're always looking for the next project that I think uh, will be a, a huge game changer and a moneymaker for investors. Yeah, thanks, Ian. And I, I would reiterate, this is complex stuff. You need someone who can explain it to you in plain English. And Ian's your guy. You know, he, he lives and breathes the stuff and he, he makes it very, very understandable. So we'll put that link below. Please do check it out. The always insightful Ian, thanks for being on this week. Sounds great. Nice talking to you guys. And for our viewers out there, thanks for tuning in. We will be back next week. Please tune in. And until then, go out and make yourself some money. <laughs>